Welcome to episode 81 of the GTO on 5G. It's the latest insight scoop on everything 5G. We cover six topics in about 15 minutes. It's brought to you by More Insights and Strategy. I'm Will Townsend, and joining me again this week is fellow analyst Anshul Sag. Let's get started with my first topic. And news broke this week that CradlePoint reached a 1 million router deployment at the Verizon Network Edge. And it's no surprise, Verizon's been heavily investing in its Edge build-out. Lots of announcements with AWS last year. CradlePoint is especially strong in the enterprise, and so they're leaning into that to help Verizon enable um, Edge capabilities. And so what does this mean for 5G service delivery? It's pretty obvious. Um, I've always talked about how mobile edge computing can supercharge 5G use cases. And certainly I believe this will be the case with Verizon. Now Verizon's been a little light on sharing specific details around service delivery with their edge investment. But I think this really bodes well for Verizon um, as they lay the foundation and hopefully they get to work on deploying C-band along with, uh, with AT&T in the not too dear, uh, near future. Um, you and I have also talked about on prior podcasts that you know, given the characteristic of uh, the C-band mid-band spectrum, that it's gonna require densification as well. And so I think all of this is goodness and, and helps Verizon, but would love to get your take on it. Yeah, I, I think that um, it's obviously a, a big milestone um, because the routers are actually powering a lot more devices, right? So. There's actually a lot more devices that are taking advantage of um, this connectivity. And realistically, once businesses get used to using these, 5G will be a drop in upgrade. Um, mm -hmm. So I think that, you know, to your point, it'll be a supercharger to enabling new use cases. I mean, like, well, you know, if you replace your, your 4G hotspot uh, with a 5G hotspot, we can offer all these new services to you. So... Mm -hmm. Um, I, I think it's a it's a big deal, and I, it's it's a lower number than I, you know. Obviously, I think um, would be necessary for um, you know industry wide scale. Yeah. But I think it's a great great start point, and I'm sure there's you know lots of services um, and recurring revenue that can be attached to those routers that mm -hmm. aren't being really quantified. Yeah, and from my perspective, that could absolutely be Verizon delivering private 5G as a service for enterprise use cases like manufacturing automation. So having this infrastructure out there with CradlePoint gets them faster to that. And Verizon and AT&T both have built significant uh, capabilities within the enterprise. And so I think that's another opportunity for Verizon as well. But let's move to your first topic this week. And you want to talk about 5G Advanced. Yeah, so there's been some talk about 5G Advanced recently. Um, they're kind of they they've managed to settle in on what the top what the different projects should be for it, um, and kind of exploring which items you know are viable uh, to include in the standard. Uh, this would be part of 3GP release 18, uh, which is. Uh, considered the first phase of 5G advanced. Um, and the interesting part is that release 17 isn't even out yet. Uh, mm -hmm. Release 17 will probably be out sometime midtime this year. Um, and then it usually takes about a year for um, products to be available after the release. So we're probably looking at 
you know, release 18 might even be a 2023, will most likely be a 2023, if not a 2024 item, meaning that features taking advantage of it will probably be 2024 or 2025 items. So we're definitely looking into the future with this, um, but there are a lot of uh, advancements within release 18 um, that really broaden the potential 5G. Um, there's, there's some carve-outs for XR. Um, there's some AI and ML applications within the network mm-hmm. to you know, Im- improve network performance. Um, and, and there's even some things around power consumption. Um, so it, it's the beginning of the transition from 5G to 6G. Um, and it will probably be the first release. So we're probably looking at like release 19, 20, and maybe even 21 before we get to 6G. Um, and, and that will be, um, you know, 2028, 2029, and we'll set us up for 2030, theoretically speaking. Yeah. Um, but, but the interesting part is that there's a lot of things that can be implemented in 5G today um, to make it better and improve you know, every component of the network um, from the device side, on the radio side, the core, you name it. There's, there's small improvements being made all along the way. And I think yeah. release 17 is going to be very interesting, um, but I think release 18 is going to be the big one that um, makes huge differences in the way the network operates. And hopefully by then we'll have everybody on standalone and um, we won't be talking about you know, network slicing as a theoretical feature anymore. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, you've talked about carrier aggregation in the past as well, right? That's one of those incremental advancements that we, you know, operators can deploy before they get to release 18. I haven't studied it like you have. I'm curious from a, from a latency perspective, because that's where I believe 5G really shines relative to LTE. What's the target, if you know it, um, around latency for for 5g advanced i mean if we're if, if we're at 5g standalone that's sub five milliseconds what are we looking at from what i saw i didn't really notice any significant latency improvements okay um that were in release 18 there were a lot of like efficiency and performance improvements um on the mimo side mm-hmm. um there were also some improvements on, I think I said, energy efficiency on the network side. Right. Um, and I think that's part of the consideration of, you know, densification and needing to reduce power consumption of the network as it increases, you know, its, its throughput mm-hmm. and, and its bit rate. Um, and yeah, there's just, uh, you know, you different new use cases um, around like XR. Um, and there was even some talk about, you know, public safety and smart cities. So, mm-hmm. I think it's more about broadening um, the applications of 5G even further um, and helping to um, optimize for certain use cases that will probably be very heavy um, applications on the network. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, like video today is obviously a huge um, stressor on on the networks and without proper optimizations, it would be even worse than it is today. So I think, you know, the constant optimization for the most likely use cases will be a big improvement long-term. I agree. And, you know, the power savings, I mean, that's huge. It's a huge OPEX line for operators. And by improving the efficiency, you can also put more devices on the network as well. And to your point, 
smart city applications, smart cameras, sensors, et cetera. I mean, you know, it's expected that massive IoT is going to just be massive from a number yeah. of devices. And, and there was also some talk about, you know, going beyond just massive IoT and yeah. even going into stuff like passive IoT, where you have stuff like RFID chips and, and things that don't even really communicate with the network directly, but can still provide data to the network um, in ways that um, would require some kind of user interaction, but at the same time are not actively consuming power or actively using the network, but could flood it if not properly, um, you know, uh, gated at, you know, the gateway. Yeah, good point. Well, let's move to my second topic this week. And I wanna talk about T-Mobile and Verizon and their fixed wireless access deployment. So the question is, as T-Mobile exited last year, they're ahead of their stated goal. It's estimated that there are almost three quarter of a million 5G FWA deployments between T-Mobile and Verizon. And so the question is, does this threat an already hammered cable industry? And you know, the answer for me is likely yes. And uh, you know, I've, I've done a little bit of research here and for the most part, most analysts, including you and I, have concluded that that number should triple by the end of uh, this year. And so two plus million subscribers, you know, uh, engaged in FWA services, that will start taking a, a big chunk out of the cable company's bottom line. Companies like Comcast, they participated in C-band, they purchased Spectrum, they're designing, you know, ways and opportunities for them to, uh, to enter that market. Comcast also made an acquisition of Mazergy last year, which is an SD-WAN provider. So, this does pr provide, you know, like a credible threat to uh, to the cable industry, and certainly, where you've got fiber, uh, you know, they'll continue probably to do well, be very, very aggressive. I know AT and T in particular, and uh, Google, at least in my neighborhood, they've they've lit up uh, fiber, and they're they're very aggressive from a pricing perspective for multi gig, and we've talked about that on prior podcasts, but. FWA could make a solid dent in the cable company's bottom line this year, but would love to get your insight on it as well. Yeah, I've, you know, I'm also a big fan of what I'm seeing with, with FWA and what its potential can be. And even just the speeds in certain areas, I've seen it save some people's um, home, home internet connections because they had no competition. Um, yeah. It was interesting because I saw some articles out there this week that put into question T-Mobile's um, FWA deployment saying that, you know, T-Mobile has the extra spectrum and they can use that extra spectrum for FWA, which I think everyone was kind of expecting they would do. Yeah. Um, but the interesting question was, you know, what's the limitation of that? And I think um, some people might be pre, pre, a little bit um, preemptive with their, with their criticism or their um, claims because T-Mobile does have almost 200 megahertz of 2.5, yeah. but they also bought a considerable amount of C-band as well. Sure. Um, and that, that's going to give them the additional capacity, I think, that they need in places where they might not have enough spectrum or they might have to split spectrum up. So um, I, I think it's too early to, 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 to claim that um, anyone doesn't have the right spectrum to do this. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I think 
once C-band is rolled out, I think everybody has enough spectrum to do this. It's really a question of what kind of speeds they want to offer and what prices they're going to charge and how much data they're going to cap. Because I think there's a lot of people out there who don't think they need 100 megs. Yeah. Um, and there's a lot of people out there who don't think they need to spend more than 30, 40 bucks a month. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of people out there who probably don't want to have unlimited. But I also think there's people who don't want to have a cap. So yeah. I think there's lots of room for competition. It's just we haven't had any. So suddenly having competition, ha- adding these FWA you know, mm-hmm. uh, opportunities, um, it gives the cable operators time to figure out what they're going to do. Yeah. Um, which a lot of them seem to be moving towards cellular. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think they're deciding that if if the uh, mobile carriers are going to stomp on their turf, they're going to stomp on theirs. Yeah, they're going to just join the party. Yeah. Yeah, but I I think um, you know the Comcasts and the Charters of the world are far more despised than um, the mobile operators are. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I think it's going to be interesting to see you know what these share change numbers look like um because a lot of what what the cable operators are doing is fairly um you know it's not sustainable behavior in their mobile business yeah um and they're they're kind of coasting on their on their wireline so we'll see what happens but it's going to be a very interesting next couple years i agree well, let's uh, move to your second topic this week. You want to talk about Signals Research Group testing T-Mobile's TDD and FDD carrier ag. Yeah, so um, Signal Research Group went out and I think they did this, I want to say it was in Maryland, but I could be wrong. Mm-hmm. Um, but they have a report out. It's a paid report. Um, but they they gave enough information um, and, and basically they went out and tested, it was in the Maryland DC area. So um, they tested T-Mobile's 2.5 gigahertz and their 600 megahertz carrier aggregation. And they basically found exactly what we thought they would. Um, They used two Galaxy S21 devices, um, one with pre-commercial software on it, which allowed the carrier aggregation because it's not flipped on yet. and then they used an, another device without it. Um, and they were able to kind of look at the difference in coverage and look at the difference in speeds. And there were some improvements in speed closer to the, to the cell site, um, which makes sense. But the real benefit was the improvement to 2.5 gigahertz coverage. Mm-hmm. And that doesn't really surprise either of us because we've been talking about this as the you know, golden opportunity for T-Mobile combining itself with Sprint um, and what that would mean for, you know, coverage and speeds. Um, And since we're looking at, you know, TDD and FDD, which are different types of spectrum, um, you know, this hasn't really been something that's happened very often. Um, And the interesting line that I saw in their testing was, um, 5G and our FDD, TDA, TDD carrier aggregation demonstrates you can have your cake and eat it too, yeah. which, you know, basically shows that you can have the coverage and you can have the speeds. And when you combine the two together, you get the best of both worlds. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think we're going to see a lot more of this moving forward. T-Mobile is obviously the first in the world to do this. Yeah. Um, but uh, they, they said that they were getting uh, peak throughputs 
exceeding 1.7 gigabits per second. And that 85% of that um, was attributable to 5GNR, um, since there were some LTE carriers as well involved. Um, and yeah, it, it's just, this is exactly what we were hoping it would be. And um, I think you're gonna see a lot of other carriers around the world that have low band spectrum that maybe isn't available yet, but once yeah. they sunset it, um, they're gonna use those low bands to aggregate with mid band and improve coverage. You know, in Europe, you're seeing lots of 700 and 800 megahertz slowly becoming available on to, to aggregate with 3.6. So mm -hmm. I, I think if anything, the, the you know, C band and, and those bands of spectrum from 3.6 to, to four are gonna need it more than T-Mobile does with 2.5. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Well, and this is a great segue to my third and final topic this week is I want to talk about spectrum scarcity as well. You and I have talked about Rakuten in the past and they've been bleeding money. Um, you know, Rakuten group in general, that is more than just mobility services. It's, you know, it's e-commerce, it's all of this. They've, uh, they've posted about $2 billion in losses since Rakuten began this journey of deploying a, wire, a wireless network. And, you know, the question becomes, you know, what, what's going on here? And, and certainly their approach has been highly disaggregated, open RAN, cloud-native architecture deployments that promises to deliver lower costs. I, you know, from a, from a you know, CapEx perspective, but operationally, there are integration challenges. They've had some setbacks and that sort of thing. But what, um, what really is at the core of this, and I dug into it, is fundamentally it's a lack of uh, spectrum. And my research indicated that um, Rakuten only holds a quarter of the spectrum that the other, you know, other mobile operators in Japan hold. And they have zero low band spectrum, right? And so this is presenting a huge challenge for them and it's, it's been really weighing heavily. So, you know, you really dig into the spectrum. You were just talking about this uh, a second ago. I mean, what are, what are your thoughts here? I mean, can Rakuten turn this thing around? And, but I mean, it's gonna require that they, that they buy spectrum. And as you and I know, spectrum is not an inexpensive thing to purchase. Yeah, so it's interesting. I think part of the reason why Rakuten doesn't have the low band is because it was auctioned so long ago. Yeah. Um, I actually am working on a report right now um, that talks about the state of 5G. Uh, and I kind of dig into spectrum in different countries and availability. Um, and one of the countries I covered was Japan. Um, and I talked about how um, there's a lot of mid band in Japan for, mm -hmm. that's available. Um, and it's actually not that much spectrum, um, especially when you look at how many carriers are sharing it. Um, but the problem to your point is no low band means very difficult coverage. And if yeah. you look at the overall coverage in Japan, it's not great. Um, right. the, the, the availability of 5G in Japan is fairly low compared to some of their neighbors like um, Korea, which mm -hmm. you know is not a great look for a country that, that used to um, you know, be seen as the future of technology, mm -hmm. um, you know, in, 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 at least in my childhood, you know, the early 90s, yeah. um, sure. that was kind of the, the hotbed of innovation. So I, I think um, Japan does need to free up spectrum for 5G. Um, 
they they seem to not have very many auctions, mm-hmm. um, which I think is part of the problem. Um, but to your point, um, the Rakuten situation, I think, is also um, when you're an innovator like Rakuten is, um, you might be too early to market and you might not have enough customers to scale your business, right? Because yeah. um, while they are in the network um, the network business in Japan, globally, the opportunity is much larger for them to have the whole symphony business offer its services to other operators. And I read an article recently, I think it was on Fierce Wireless, that said that you know they were able to show 40% OPEX site savings. Right. So the, the idea of saving 40% on OPEX may out weigh all the additional costs of, you know, building out integration. um, yeah. integrations and things like that. But to, to everyone else's point, this would only be really, would only really make sense if you're replacing an entire network. And uh, at this point, most 5G networks are built out. And if they're not built out they're you know, they have a lot of 4G legacy infrastructure. Yeah. Um, and if you look at Rakuten's network today, it's still mostly 4G, um, and and that's a problem too. So yeah. I, I think um, I think there's a fundamental disconnect from between Rakuten's um, potential and what they're what they're actually able to accomplish where they're located. Um, you know, Japan is notoriously bureaucratic um, and slow moving. Um, in terms of just getting things done, uh, especially when it comes to stuff like this, where you have regulatory agencies controlling spectrum and you have all these kinds of, you know, businesses that have to, that can control where you deploy your, your cell sites. So I think, um, I think that they are kind of in a, in a tough place where that they need to be more aggressive, but I'm not sure they can be. Um, and it doesn't bode well for their future, especially if they're, you know, bleeding cash. Yeah. Um, but I, I think ultimately what needs to happen is there needs to be a push to move things more quickly. And I don't know if that means getting more investment or if that means getting acquired or acquiring somebody else. Yeah. Um, but as, a, as I see it today, they're just, J- Japan in general is not a great 5G market. Right. Um, and I think that's part of the reason why Rakuten is struggling because, um, you know, they obviously identified a need to reduce the cost of deployment, right? Because I think the cost of deployment is part of the reasons why they haven't deployed 5G as quickly in Japan as they yeah. could have or should have. Um, but something's not getting that that steam engine moving. And, and, and I don't know what it is, um, but it, it's not, it's, to your point, it's not, it doesn't look good for them right now. Yeah. No, and um, great insights, by the way, on sort of the macro environment within Japan and the difficulty of operators to, to operate. So, but let's move to your third and final topic this week. And we would be remiss if we didn't talk about this whole FAA, FCC, C-band, you know, craziness. And so you want to provide an update. I caught this news as well, but I'll let you take it away. Yeah, so right after we published last week's uh, podcast, another FAA um, announcement came out that they would be creating these buffer zones 
around 50 different airports in the in the country. Um, I I was surprised to see this list. Um, and I thought it was a little funny that San Diego International Airport's not on it. But we don't really get bad weather that much. So I yeah. think that's probably what the, why they didn't do that. Right. Um, but this would establish these buffer zones where there wouldn't be no C-band um, available. Yeah. Um, and I guess the big concern is if any of these airports are near city centers, that means your city center is not getting C-band, which is a problem, which yeah. I was concerned about San Diego because our airport's basically downtown. It's right downtown, yeah. Yeah, so, um, which is great for everybody who lives downtown. Yeah. Um, but I think that, you know, everything I'm seeing, the operator's like, we'll wait six months to, you know, we'll, we'll do a six-month delay at, in, in these zones and stuff. And I just keep seeing a lot of giving from the operators and and no and no giving from yep. from the FAA. It's I all agree. take. I agree. It's um, all take. Yeah, and the FCC is still sitting on that $82 billion that they raise. And I, I, I just think that um, this really does come down to money, but nobody wants to admit it. Um, <laughs> So uh, I think we're going to find there's going to be some kind of resolution. Uh, but the interesting thing is the FAA is really, I think they're trying to play all their cards. Um, and I think they might be playing them too, too quickly. Yeah. Um, but I think, I think they waited until the 11th hour to do all this because now it's, you know, everyone's spent all their money, all the, all the uh, um, people have been paid, the, most of the infrastructure is probably in place. So yeah. they, they waited until the operators were already kind of had their hands tied. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I, I'm just not a fan of all this. Uh, and now they're putting out these NOTAMs, which are notices to airmen, uh, basically warning them that C-band might be, might be a problem for them and that they should be careful when they're flying. But the thing is, is that they also don't have an actual number of airplanes that are affected by this. There yeah. isn't a clear number that the FAA can say, this is how many planes are potentially affected by this yeah. uh, or a percentage of the planes. So I think they are operating with impunity at this point. Um, they are basically doing as they please. Um, and they seem to think they have all the power. Um, and I think that once we we these networks roll out, I think there there should be there should be commercial deployments that you can test with a plane flying over it to verify whether or not there is an actual interference with the plane's ability to to check its radar. I I'm, I'm so frustrated that this was never even done. Yeah. Um, with commercial equipment and a commercial network, and yeah. it could have been. Um, and. I just hope this gets worked out as soon as possible because it really does, the C-band deployment really does affect the U.S.'s readiness to have 5G and all the use cases that come with it. Exactly. It's huge. It's mid-band. It's that optimal balance of performance and coverage, AT&T and Verizon and T-Mobile to a lesser extent, but a ton of spectrum in auction. And it's time it's time for the federal government to, you know, to play fair ball from my perspective. So, but I'm sure we will be continuing to monitor this situation. I'm sure we'll have updates on future podcasts, but 
It's been a great podcast this week, my friend. Why don't you take us home? Absolutely. We hope our viewers and listeners found this week's topics interesting. If anyone out there would like to provide insights on a specific 5G topic for a future podcast, please reach out to us on social media. Will's at Will Town Tech, and I'm at Anshal Sog. We hope you have a great weekend, and please tune in again next week.